Hello, I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Aiden LaRue. Aiden is a now 29-year-old artist, writer, and BRCA1 positive human. Uh, BRCA1 positive human. I've known Aiden since my grade school days where we won a swing dancing competition together and we haven't spoken for almost half a decade. This interview served a chance to catch up and see where life has taken us. During this conversation, we discuss the intertwining of science and magic to predict her future health, land art installations as spirituality, and how a partner changes our plans for the future. Before we talk more about Aiden and this awesome conversation that we had, uh, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. These are weekly reflections of my medical school career that I've written from my first anatomy lab to now, the end of third year. And I'll be uh, publishing and wrapping up uh, third year uh, actually pretty soon after this podcast gets published. And on May 27th, uh, 2018, I published On Small Reminders. This week, I reflected on the final sprint ahead, which will end third year. A few night shifts, a shelf exam, and then a day of simulated patient encounters separates me from breathing a bit of from breathing a bit of relief as this challenging year of clerkships comes to a close. Then more recently, on June 3rd, I published On Summer Nights, Surgery Postmortem. This week, I reflected on my surgical care clerkship. I end third year with a week of nights, and I come up with ways to not be salty about it. The OR is a weird place for future psychiatrists. And so you can find those posts in their entirety at mnmwod.com. That is mobility and mindfulness work of the day, mnmwod.com. And uh, please take a look, and you'll also find all of the interviews for On Death uh, there as well. So, Aiden is alive, a writer, an artist, an assistant director of a company that studies one person's experiences, a lover, a reader, uh, she's active, in love, and happy. Before Aiden dies, she wants to write another book, at least. Uh, She wants more humans to encounter their own humanity, to continue to travel, to show some of her artwork in galleries, to have a home, and she wants people to think differently. When she dies, she wants to feel at peace, and she wants it to be a moment of acceptance. After she dies, she wants all her loved ones to be healthy and happy. And uh, in conclusion, Aiden says, I hope your listeners can be curious about the world around them, and I hope that you can be too. So uh, this was a really great conversation, as I mentioned above. Uh, so we knew we we grew up in uh, school together in New Hampshire, and uh, we knew each other uh, pretty well. We had a, a very similar group of friends, and uh, you know, since graduating high school, going off to college, uh, we've separated like like often happens, and um, it's been a really interesting practice to to find in, individuals from my past when I was a very different person. I was a very young, awkward, gawky individual, and um, you know, now I'm a, I feel like a very different person, and I want to interview people from that time when we had that weird little sort of Venn diagram of time together, and now where where are they? And uh, Aiden Larue is one of them, and she, we, we. It was a great chance to uh, to catch up because uh, I found out during the interview that she is BRCA1 positive, and this is a, a gene mutation that is, um, you know, somewhat. It's relatively common, um, but in a, not in a great way. It is. Uh, it predisposes you to uh, breast and ovarian cancer very early on in life. Um, there, the the general guidelines are that you should um, that are the guidelines are 
are that uh, a prophylactic mastectomy and oophorectomy, which means you uh, have your breast tissue and your ovaries removed uh, 10 years before the first occurrence within your family uh, of breast or ovarian cancer. And so for Aiden, um, her her the first exposure uh the first incidence of cancer was 34 uh so that means she should have she should have all or like per the guidelines uh they recommended that she already have uh the surgeries but she hasn't yet um and that's uh that's just a very interesting thing that we we, we discuss and we dive into uh and that was something that i didn't know going in the conversation i was like oh man this is just so it, it was just so wild to me because i i was coming kind of coming off of all these um standardized you know, or uh, these these multiple choice questions where BRCA one positive things might be mentioned, and then I was just like, oh, you just get you just do the mastectomy, you get the ovaries taken out. Uh, but to also now see somebody that I know um, that I've known for quite some time, and uh, to see watch her deal with this. And sorry, you'll hear some panting in the background. That's my dog. That's not me. I promise. <laughs> She's just very excited to hear hear what I'm doing. Hey, honey. So um, we also talk about how uh, uh, how. Um, the 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 BRCA1 positive is sort of like telling you your fate. It's almost like magic, and uh, how that can change. How, how it's not really science at that point. You're like trying to read the future, uh, but you might. You, you, I mean, of course, you you'll likely get breast cancer. You'll likely get ovarian cancer. But you might die of something else. You might get a uh, 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 stub your toe and get a, a toe infection and uh, and and die from that. But you never really know. And uh, we also talk about land art, which is this these really cool, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes, um, these really cool installations of these giant, uh, just just uh, big sculptures um, in um, in like the desert in the, in the southwest, and uh, they're exposed to the elements, and there's no, you know, they place them intentionally in places where there aren't um, other cities or lights, or it's just you, this installation, and the sky above. And um, it was really interesting hearing her perspective on visiting some of these and how they're almost her pilgrimage now. Um, in addition, we also talk about how she has a partner now. And how that kind of changes the way that she experiences uh, her disease of, or not necessarily her disease, but her, her gene mutation of BRCA1 positive-ness. Because uh, before she was like, maybe I won't get the surgery, or maybe I will. Uh, but now that she has this person in her life uh, that is important to her, uh, the idea of leaving him behind um, just because she didn't want to have the surgery kind of changes it, flipped the switch for her. And uh, how that is just, uh, and I, I experienced that as well, and that's something that's, you know, when you have a person who you might leave behind, it changes the way you think about death and the cavalierness that a, a young person might feel towards, like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll die whenever I die, uh, you know, only the good die young, that kind of thing. And uh, I think you'll really like this conversation. We talk um, a lot. I mean, the the whole conversation about uh, the her her gene mutation was just really it's really great. And she has such a, a perspective on it because she has she she is a writer, she's an artist, and she expresses her her thoughts and her ways her her, her ideas in such a way that are really uh, beautiful and, and metaphorical and and. Um, and, and you know artistic uh because she you know she talks about how she uh wrote a story where um there, there are two do uh two two stories in one uh one where somebody's getting a, a gender affirmation uh, surgery to have their breast tissue removed to to um look more like a man um or to to feel more embodied in their body and uh, uh somebody else who is also brecon positive having their breast tissue removed for uh medical reasons and how they're the same surgery uh but they mean such different things for those two different individuals um 
one having their identity stripped away and then another another having their identity reaffirmed it's it's very interesting and that you know that 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 kind of depth of thought comes across in this interview i believe and so i hope that you uh don't mind me talking too much about this uh, awesome conversation that i had with aiden um i hope that you are ready to drink some coffee drink some tea go on a walk uh maybe you just pet your dog and stretch while you listen to this really great conversation with aiden larue on death it is March 21st, 2018. I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home, and Aiden LaRue is sitting in her partner's Austin, Texas home, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Aiden, what are the four prompts? <laughs> um, I am. Before I die, I want. When I die, I want. After I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish the first prompt? I am. Um, I am alive. Seems like a good place to start, um, mm-hmm. given the topic of this podcast. Um, I'm a writer. I think it's so easy to finish this prompt with identities, but I also think there's like ways of being too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a writer. I'm an artist. I'm an assistant director of a company that studies people and makes one person experiences that are like immersive and durational. Um, I'm a lover. I'm a reader. (laughs) Um, I am active. I'm alive. I'm in love. I'm happy. There are lots of things that I could keep going on. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to crack open first? Um, I am alive. Yeah. So what is it? What does, uh, what does it mean to be alive? Um, well, I think for me, I'm very aware every day of my health. Um, mostly because when I was 24, I took a blood test and found out that I have a genetic mutation. That means I'm incredibly likely to get breast cancer and or ovarian cancer. I don't know if you know about the BRCA1 mutation. So I'm BRCA1 positive. Um, And so I think since I learned about that, I have had just like a lot more of an intimate and close relationship with my body and what it means to be alive. I think when I found that out, it was sort of by accident. This doctor was like, oh, you live in New York state. You can, and both your grandmothers had breast cancer. So you can take this blood test. That's $8,000 for free. but he didn't counsel me or um, prepare me in any way for what the answer could mean. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think since I've found out that I've become very aware that I had this preconceived notion of a sort of like entitlement to live a good long life. And now I don't know that that will happen. And I, you know, go in and have regular checkups and rest MRIs and 
ultrasounds and people do their best to screen for me, but I think there's just this awareness that I'll be really lucky if I live to be 44, which is when my grandmother died. Mm. And I'm really lucky that I know that I have this predisposition, but I think also that it has given my every day feels like there's this like quickness and a sense of closeness to the sort of like fibers of what it means to be alive on any given day. And I feel like I've always been a very driven person who knew that I wanted this like creative life that was involved with writing or making art and it can be a real struggle to like figure out how to make that happen. And since I learned that I'm BRCA positive, it has just given me like even more determination and fire of like uh, being unwilling to accept anything, but the like most coveted thing that I want, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a very um, so that kind of perspective is usually earned through uh, like a brush with death, like a direct mm-hmm. one, where it's like you know you you survive a car accident, you uh, you almost drown while surfing or something like that, uh, and yeah. that kind of change that changes a person. It's like a very I think mm-hmm. that there's a very binary experience of like what life was before a, a near death experience. Or, or that kind of brush with death and what life is like afterwards. And I think yeah. it's very interesting that your um, sort of your crucible is not necessarily a crucible. It's, it's sort of just like, oh, this is just some information right here. Right, boom. Like you, you just, you didn't know that now, but now you do. And um, instead of you getting the experience of like having to recover from car accident or you having to uh, wrestle with a fear of surfing for the rest of your life, you have you, you just you just were given the information you're like okay now i have to learn how to process this and i think that's a mm-hmm. you know not necessarily the greatest you know that's not necessarily how we're being taught to you know to be physicians you know just just take this test it's free and then it's, it's well you know we'll sort it out later um, but being able but like having the ability to um i don't know just just going through this process of like confronting your own mortality is a tough one to go through, especially without that kind of an actual experience to surround it. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the weirdest parts about it is just being, like you mentioned, being so young. I think a lot of my friends did a great job trying to support me. And it was something that like, it can be really hard. Like you're saying, if you haven't had your own encounter with death at a young age, to know what questions to ask or, you know, it was also just so overwhelming, like to be told, you know, the recommendation is that I would have a prophylactic mastectomy and that I will have my ovaries removed. Probably all, you know, like most doctors are saying you should do it 10 years before the earliest incidents in my family. So my grandmother got breast cancer when she was 34. So... I'm already, and then she got ovarian cancer when she was 44. She had a mastectomy that first time. Um, So, like, I already feel like 
I'm at risk because I've chosen not to have surgery right now. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to have to like anticipate that bodily change. Um, Cause you're right. I think there is something about that, like shock into awareness that is like a physical process of healing that partly like allows you to reconcile. Um, and one of the things that I remember the first year after I found out was how I had to constantly remind myself that I wasn't sick, that I like wasn't <laughs> already ill. Um, Cause it's kind of like getting this weird prophecy. Like in some ways it was this uh, way to encounter the fact that I science and prophecy are like, deeply intertwined or that like science and the realm of magic are closer than I thought because someone telling you how you're going to die seems like magic right but or knowing anything about the future seems like magic but it's actually deeply intertwined with a study and a sort of like very rigorous understanding of the body um And I think, yeah, just sort of like reckoning with the fact that I also could die a different way. Like (laughs) I could get hit by a car tomorrow, right? Like I can have all this awareness of a fatal flaw in my genetic makeup (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I can't suppress cancer and tumors. But it's also so much more than that. Like the world is a dangerous place. And, um, yeah, and it's like a tricky, a tricky thing to share, you know, sometimes I think the first year that I knew I was very reticent to share it and talk about it and sort of over time, I've almost like destigmatized it for myself and tried to like, let it go and have it just be like this thing that. Um, you know, I think being a writer helps with that. The like writing has become so confessional recently. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. and there's there's like uh, so t- there are two things that pop up for me. It's like uh, I've I follow uh, I followed I've had the opportunity to shadow some like thyroid uh, surgeons uh, that you know work with uh, thyroid cancers and like you know it's uh, thyroid. Uh, a lot, most of the thyroid cancers are ones that grow very slowly. So it's like, it's okay. If you're like, you know, in your thirties, you want to remove it. If you're in your eighties, you're probably going to die of something else beforehand. And that's always Mm -hmm. something that I always, I see the physicians say it. And I know that it doesn't land on the patient the way that the physician thinks. Like they're, they're like, <laughs> but I have this, I have cancer, right? And they're like, yeah, but you know, you're definitely going to die before that ever becomes a problem. And the, and the patients are like, but uh. like, what the heck, man? <laughs> exactly. It's just one of those things because their their perspective is just so like thousand foot view and like not on the individual level. So it's a it's yeah. one and so like your understanding that. You know, it, you know, if you make it to 50, it, you'll probably end up developing a cancer of some sort. That said, you might not make it to 50 because something else might happen before then. I think that's a very, also a very Im- uh, important like thing to note is like, yes, it's sort of a prophecy, but it's not your destiny necessarily. Yeah, that's a good distinction for sure. And I think it's like, 
also made me more careful in general. Like I used to never be very good at like paying attention to crosswalk signs and stuff like that. Like um, I would always sort of run across in New York, I would run across the street and not care that it was not a walk sign. Um, and I try and get better about it. I think that also has to do with being in love. Like you want to stay alive for your person. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think also like I become more and more aware each day that like either of us could have a sort of like precarious, our lives are precarious no matter what you do. And, um, the desire, like I've almost... I've almost had more of a willingness to think about getting surgery sooner for my partner. Cause mm. like it doesn't, I don't want to risk it for him. Like, um, it's not worth it for him to lose me, but it's like harder to conceptualize me losing myself. If that makes any sense. Like mm-hmm. it's really hard to conceptualize cutting off parts of my body. It's really scary. But then thinking about staying alive for someone, it's like it doesn't matter anymore mm-hmm. when you think about it in terms of someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of those, uh, it's, it's tough in, in that they're the, they're the two parts of you that are like the definitive uh, aspects that make you like a feminine creature you know versus a mass you know or, or androgynous it's like very much like those are like the things that kind of make you like if you hold on to the identity of female it's like they're what make you female you know uh in, in terms of the biological sense so it's a very it's and and then it's like what do they do with it with with what they remove like what like do they because like, i know i've seen some i've seen i started my surgery rotation and it's just like you know they take the tissue they throw it in the bag and i don't know where the bag goes you know it's it's one of those, like wastes, probably <laughs> exactly and it's like that's you it's, it's part of you and to to have such yeah. um vital and um like identifiable parts of you taken and then like where do they go it's it's one of it's a tough thing to reconcile yeah and you know I think I actually wrote a a short story about this last quarter um sort of thinking about the ways in which friends of mine um have gone through gender affirmation surgeries to remove their breasts but for very different reasons um and how that can be like how the same action can feel so positive and liberating for them and I think for me and in the short story I was writing sort of like having these two friends who are having the same surgery go through like a parallel experience that has much different physical ramifications for them um partly as a way honestly like a little bit selfishly to sort of think through like what are the ways in which I can consider this like an unshackling in the same way that they might like Mm -hmm. um even though and in spite of the fact like that my breasts are part of my identity as a woman and someone who like I deeply, deeply identify with like the feminine in myself. And um, I don't think I'm made by 
my anatomy. My identity wasn't that, but, um, you know, it's interesting to sort of recon. I also have friends and people that I've met over the years who are also BRCA positive or who've just had breast cancer because there's too much breast cancer in this world. <laughs> and so I've seen a lot of women take off their shirts. Show <laughs> <laughs> me like what their reconstructed breasts look like. And they never feel like, it never feels like you're looking at a human body. Um, Mm-hmm. And yet it's almost like this way of passing in the world as a healthy person to have reconstruction. And it's interesting too, cause like I'm almost, I care less about removing my ovaries partly cause I don't really imagine having children for myself, but um, my, I'm a little bit more scared about the way that that could actually like alter who I am and how I am in the world because of going into early menopause. And Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting to be like almost more willing to get rid of one body part that, but like more scared of the consequences of that. Um, Mm. And that sort of like give and take of the weirdness of, like uh changing your hormones in your body mm-hmm. um, one's invisible but has widespread manifestations like it, it's essential to to like kind of the biological function for a while and then the mm-hmm. other one is so it's so visible but n- not really important biologically yeah. speaking yeah exactly um yeah. And who knows? I think it's also like removing, having a nephrectomy is a lot more of a wild card from what I've heard talking to other women. I know plenty of women who continue having the same sex drive and the same sort of like balanced emotional life. And I know other women who've like totally lost interest and don't feel like sexual creatures anymore. And they're like different hormonally which then affects their personality and the way that they are with the people around them and so it's kind of a there's a lot more surrender in sort of like identity for me in that surgery than there is necessarily for removing my breasts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh is there and, and you you kind of alluded to this but how has uh, been talking to other other uh individuals who have gone through various stages of this, um, either are positive or not, or just like, like, uh, you know, like you're, you're at a point where you're sort of like looking down the line and you're able to see people at various stages of it. And you're like, I'm anticipating entering that line. Um, Mm -hmm. how has that, how has that helped your experience with this? Um, kind of freaked me out uh the first year <laughs> the first year i was like pretty i was meh a mess <laughs> when did you when did you find out i was 24 mm. um, and i was i tried going to a support group which was just not a good idea at the time um because i walked away that that first year i really thought i was going to have surgery immediately that I was like, I found out in October and I was like, well, I guess next summer I'll go home to New Hampshire 
and like stay with my parents while I have this operation. Um, partly because I met some women who were really young, who were only a few years older than me at the time at the support group. And they had acted very quickly, but they were in very different situations. You know, I think um, there's all of this intersectionality in how I'll deal with it. And I think the way that I deal with it largely relates to this like lifestyle I have as an artist and a writer. Um, Where like the women that I was talking to who had acted that quickly had like big marketing jobs at like corporations in New York city that gave them paid time off and gave them health insurance. And, um, I, you know, right now I feel very fortunate that I have health insurance through teaching at UCSD and being a graduate student. Um, but I was very worried about that and very worried about, you know, I don't, at the time I didn't have a job that was like, Oh yeah, you can take off three months to heal and have major surgery and then come back. Um, so I think my conceptualizing of it had a lot to do with that. Um, and now I'm totally forgetting the question. Oh, you were asking about other women. And then I think after that, actually I met this wonderful woman through the woman that I worked for who also had dealt with the same thing. And I think having a peer who was also a writer who had gone through it, even though she was uh, 15 or 20 years older than me made so much more of a difference than like talking to someone who was necessarily my age, which is what I felt like when I first found out was the hardest part was that I was young and I was like still dating. And I was like, what would that be like to go on a date with someone and then like take your shirt off? And suddenly you're like having to explain like, Oh yeah, these are fake. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) and I think actually a lot of the reason that I didn't end up having surgery so fast was because I fell in love like six months after. Um, And so I sort of like slowed down and was like really in this moment of reveling in my body and like being with someone um, like the most remarkable human I've ever met and getting that experience was far more important than sort of necessarily going to the support group and having women like show me their new boobs. I always call them boobs when they're fake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Rests are like these and (laughs) boobs are the replacements. Um, But I think, yeah, it's interesting. It's a, I haven't met many women with it and you know, in some ways, because both my grandmothers had breast cancer, but my maternal grandmother had breast cancer when she was in her 70s. So um, it was like more of a, that's pretty normal. Not normal, but um, having breast cancer when you're 34 is not normal. And I don't have sisters, biological sisters, um, obviously Shannon and I are stepsisters, but, and I don't have aunts or uncles. Um, so I kind of have no other points of reference and constellations in the tree, the family tree. Um, and so in many ways, like 
there were two or three women who I knew in their forties who got cancer a couple years ago and that put sort of like put more pressure and fear on my part in terms of my own body, because I think a lot of those women that I was meeting in a support group had seen their aunts and their mothers Mm. and their grandmothers go through it. And I haven't had to witness aside from my grandmother who dealt with her cancer so swiftly that I almost didn't get a chance to like, she just is such a strong woman that she took care of it. You know, it didn't linger. It wasn't like something we talked about a ton. Um, And because I wasn't there firsthand witnessing like sitting with an aunt in chemotherapy or having these moments of reconciling the sickness actively, I think like seeing friends now get sick is like far more scary and affects and impacts the way that I conceptualize how I'll act in my own situation and sort of like put pressure on my own timeline because the doctors are very, very vague and medicine is so hard to know like how fast it'll advance. Some people have said like, Oh, just hold out. Like people make so people are learning so much all the time and it's great to be hopeful. Like I, do you know about CRISPR? Yeah. Like (laughs) when I heard the radio lab episode about CRISPR, I was like, Oh my God, I'm saved. And then, you know, I read more about it and realized they were like way behind on what actively I thought was possible, but just things like that. I don't know. The, the timeline is very vague. Mm. And, uh, we, okay. I think we will, we will return to this. I'm sure. Um, I want to ask if you had a religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood. Um, I went to Unitarian Universalist Church with my dad. Um, But, and I went, I guess, with my mom to a lot of yoga retreat centers. I think that was a big part of my religious upbringing. And I think I always hated going to church. I didn't really like it, but I think in retrospect, I think it's pretty cool to have gone to a UU church where the sort of fundamental belief is in the inherent self-worth of every human. And, you know, I was exposed to, um, we, celebrated like Passover at Sunday school and we just practiced Mm. and learned about a lot of other traditions and practices that were not limited to Christianity or, um, you know, they would talk about, they would reference parts of the Bible sometimes, but in some ways it was more about like how to be a good human. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, what is your relationship now with uh, religion or spirituality? Hmm. Um, I think that right now my most spiritual practice is exists as going to see these 
works of land art. Do you know about land art? Um, So in the 60s, there's this amazing tradition of artists sort of deciding they didn't want to show their work in galleries. And um, they started just going out into the desert in the Southwest and building these massive... Siri thinks I'm talking to her. Um, <laughs> building these massive sculptures. Shh, go to bed, sweetie. <laughs> uh, building these massive sculptures out in the desert. And they're usually really isolated. There's one called Spiral Jetty, which is kind of one of the most famous pieces that's out um, on the northern part of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. And it's this huge spiral that goes into, extends into the lake. I think it's like 10 feet wide. And there are these like black rocks that extend in the spiral into the lake and the water level rises and falls. Um, But it's far out there and people take pilgrimages out to these works. There's another one that's in uh, Western Utah by an artist, Nancy Holt called Sun Tunnels. And it's these four concrete tunnels that have holes drilled in the top that on the, is it the summer equinox and winter? I think it's the summer in equinox, the stars align. And so when you're inside the tubes, the stars are aligned directly with the holes that are in these concrete tunnels. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, So for me, I think like my spiritual practice in the last five years has really been about going to see these works that are in isolation. And my partner and I took a road trip. It was like five weeks, um, about four years ago. And we went and saw a lot of the work that I had sort of like dreamed of, but never encountered. And I had just like transcendent experiences when I was there, reckoning with my scale in the world, feeling like so small when you're out in these places so far away from everything else. There are no lights that you can see in the distance. Um, There are no buildings in the line of sight of all these works. Um, It's just you and this kind of weird naturalistic artwork <laughs> um, and the artwork is left to the sort of elements it's left out there not preserved necessarily it's meant to have an encounter with entropy and for me it's been this almost like going to these meccas where I have these amazing experiences of awe and wonder at the world and about how little I matter. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it just has to do with like extreme isolation, um, kind of like floating in a sensory deprivation tank. Like when you're really cut off from so much of what the rest of the human world is and you're just there with nature. Um, There's a real richness and vitality to that. There's also this, I think my favorite one so far is this piece called The Lightning Field, which is in New Mexico. And it's a hundred, wait, no, how many rods is it? I forget how many rods it is, but it's these huge, tall metal pointed rods in a part of New Mexico that has an incredibly high likelihood already of getting struck by lightning. And (laughs) 
um, it's just a little cabin and you go stay out in this cabin in the field and hope that lightning comes. And it's all about this connection of the sky and the earth and feeling the power of like waiting for this profound thing to happen. Um, hmm. So I think that's yeah, though, that sounds very cool. The uh, <laughs> is land art you said? Yeah. Or it's also referred to as earthworks sometimes. Yeah, there's like a very uh like like there's a very celestial um like stonehenge sort of feel to it where it's like a like these are big things but not as big as the environment that they're placed in. And I think that's a very interesting uh that's that's really cool. I'll have to look into it. Yeah, and there's so it's so meditative. Like I think just having the space, like when you're in a museum, you walk around a museum and maybe spend if you are really into something you maybe spend four minutes standing in front of it maybe mm-hmm. that would have to be like a really gripping piece but when you're out there this is the only thing that's there like mm-hmm. to go to lightning field you drive i think it's like three or four hours away from albuquerque in this tiny 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 little town in Kamado, which has a population that i think is like hovering around a few hundred or smaller i think it's like 130 people or something and then from there someone drives you out to a secret location that's like an hour away 45 minutes away so you're like so far removed that all of your energy and your attention goes to this one work of art in a way that normally your attention might bounce around to all the other people that are in the museum or the people whipping out their phones to take pictures with the Mona Lisa or the water fountain dripping or, you know, mm-hmm. there's like a million things that will grab for your attention. Interesting. And so you are alive and you also covered some creative things. Yeah, I know. This is a long rambling talk. It's great. Uh, yeah. So you, you're a writer. Uh, you, what else was in that list? writer artist um yeah we can talk about writing um i think writing for me yeah it's funny i've always felt like writing i had to pick between being a writer and an artist for a long time and now i feel like i finally sort of like agreed to not pick a favorite and just (laughs) give them attention as i feel um most fits me and now because I'm in a graduate program for writing I'm really giving a lot of my energy and attention to that um, and to teaching poetry which has been phenomenal so what is your uh like what has your relationship to writing been like I mean because uh since I've known you you've done a lot of writing like Mm -hmm. like in the high school level and then beyond that, um, like, what, how have, how has your relationship to the act of writing uh, changed? Hmm. Um. I think I used to not trust myself as a writer, and now, having spent time in art school, I think what I learned there was to really trust my impulses and my obsessions, and. Um, allow myself to 
just go deep in whatever was piquing my interest profoundly. And now as a writer, I think that has given me a sense of permission um, to write in a like less traditional way. So right now I write mostly essays and nonfiction prose, but they're pretty fragmented. And I'm in a program at UCSD that's pretty experimental in that they it's very cross genre and you're allowed to experiment um, with sort of blending these forms. Whereas a lot of grad programs and MFAs, you have to claim some sort of territory. Um, sorry, I keep moving around. Uh, <laughs> trying to get comfortable. Yeah, you have to sort of say, I'm a poet or I'm a fiction writer. And claiming that territory has never felt that interesting to me. Um, I've always felt like whatever I make needs to respond to the idea for the project will come before the form necessarily. So when I was talking about that short story that I was writing that parallels two friends who are having, Mm -hmm. one's having top surgery and one's having a mastectomy for medical reasons, that came out of my own interest, but I chose fiction as a form to explore something that I myself cannot yet confront and decide. Mm -hmm. And um, as a way to almost like position myself in a state of inquiry within the story. But sometimes I'll make, I'll have an idea for an artwork and it'll have to be a sculpture because that's what it demands. But then I could also turn it into a drawing and the ability to just sort of move through whatever the work demands has always been like what's important to me. So I guess um, allowing for that interdisciplinary approach that is very not fixed necessarily is what has changed most. Um, And I've done a lot of, you know, writing art criticism and, Um, I wrote a book with one of my collaborators and that was about Odyssey works and our process studying the life of one person and making these massive performances for them. So yeah, I guess it's sort of about transitioning to whatever is needed. If Mm -hmm. that makes sense. And, uh, what about the, um, the shift from like, or I, I mean, maybe there, was there even ever a shift of like writing for pleasure to writing for uh, your as your profession? Like, has, mm-hmm. was did you ever know, feel that as a shift? Um, did that change the way you approached writing? I think it's all. It's still writing for pleasure, and it's professional. <laughs> like, uh, mm-hmm. I feel really lucky in that I sort of started. Uh, writing some art criticism and it was really this way for me when I was no longer in school to continue thinking deeply about work like I was already going to museums and seeing gallery shows so like I might as well spend an hour writing about it or even 30 minutes thinking critically about it and then have it get published somewhere because it doesn't take that much more beyond what I'm already going to do Um, and then sort of through that process, I wasn't getting paid at the time, you know, I built up 
a portfolio or some a portfolio of clips that I could send to other editors and say, hey, I've written this art criticism and I'd love to write a piece about this. Will you pay me to do it? And when I was in Austin, that was when I really started writing as a freelance writer a lot more and was able sort of similarly to just have what I love to do become a source of income also. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we transition to the to the next prompt before I die, I want, I want to talk about uh, your identity as a lover. Uh, oh, yeah. What, what, uh, what does that mean to you? Um, I think... Well, it means that I'm partners with this wonderful human named Lucas Laredo. Um, <laughs> and Great yeah. Um, and I think I've always, it's funny, I think my practice as an artist has always been about the sensorial and has always been about creating these, a lot of it has been big installations or sculptures. So I had my most recent exhibition was four beds in a gallery space that were filled with different materials. And one was filled with jasmine rice. One had a set of sheets that had been dipped in the Great Salt Lake at Spiral Jetty. and so they were encrusted with salt because it's just the Great Salt Lake is so, so salty and crystalline. There was a, um, a bed that was filled with soil from beneath a tree that was struck by lightning. Um, and all of them were places people could sleep in. So I, the beds were up on Airbnb and people could spend the <laughs> night in them. And they were meant to be touched. Like I've always had this resistance to the fact that you can't physically interact with work in museums. And so it's always been about this like physical, tactile, multi-sensory experience for me as a maker. And I think that sort of like softness and love of touching things is also about being a human and uh, experiencing pleasure and being with another human. brings me great joy and I've also taught sex ed classes um, at art spaces in New York which has been really fun to sort of like open this window for adults who have very different backgrounds in what their sex ed classes were um, Mm -hmm. to sort of open space for them to practice communication around their desires um, in this way that's very holistic and sort of like well how can you receive someone's desire and say no, but also make them feel heard? Or how can you sort of like learn to practice saying what you want rather than just taking it? Um, And I feel like that is also about being a lover, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like being kind and vulnerable and empathetic all kind of like in one big old ball right yeah it's also i think being a lover is part of being human right like uh an odyssey where it's all interconnected odyssey works and studying one person is all about empathy and about they're vulnerable with us they tell us real things in their life the 
the application that they fill out is really extensive and they let us in in this very real way and we're total strangers to them. Um, and I think that's the same as what happens in a sex ed classroom is the same as what happens in the poetry classroom that I had last quarter is the same as what happens with your partner. You're vulnerable, you're empathetic, you listen, you're curious, like... Um, I think curiosity is a really fundamental part of connecting with others and connecting with the world. And mm-hmm. um, before, uh, so so uh, let you you kind of like gave like the boilerplate, of like what is Odyssey Works, and you kind of mm-hmm. dove into a little bit just now. Um, but like, what uh, could you give an example of an Odyssey work? Yeah, so our process sort of, it's usually like a six to nine month process. It sort of depends on the project, but we'll, and it depends on the funding structure, but like, uh, say we get a grant and we're going to be part of a festival, a performing arts festival in Brooklyn. Then we'll open up a call for applications. Anyone in Brooklyn can apply to receive an Odyssey made for them. And what they do is they'll fill out this application that's like 15 pages long. They'll be asked questions like their biographical information, their aesthetic tastes, um, what food they hate, and then sort of like deeper philosophical things like what is your relationship to nature? Questions like what you and I are talking about. Um, What is your relationship to religion and spirituality? What's your relationship to your body? What's your relationship with your mother? Do you have a mentor? Tell us about the mentor. It goes really deep. And then after that, we interview their friends and family, their coworkers, their children. Um, And then we go on a retreat and we study the life of that person. Together, we look at all the materials we've collated. And we basically try and like eat, breathe, sleep, dream about them we eat their favorite foods, we watch their favorite films, we talk about their like most important locations that have sort of like these visceral memories for them. And then we sort of de- develop a, depends on the project, but usually an odyssey is like a weekend long. So a two day experience that's transformative that will, we ask this question, what do you wish for them? And So for someone that might be like, I wish for you to be more in your body. Like we had this man who was very, very intellectual, who we just wanted him to bring his fast paced, smart brain into his body and be like, look around you, feel the world. Um, And so the Odyssey was sort of like, how can we meet him at his really intelligent mode of operating? Um, and then sort of like slowly strip away the brain to bring him into his body. And we did that. He had, um, he was really obsessed with maps at the time. And so he, we had this like mapping activity that he did throughout New York. He was sent on this mission where he was like running around the city, trying to map things. And then, um, this is like, redacting it greatly but basically he ended up at the top of central park with this dancer he met uh at a barbecue but he didn't realize she was a member of odyssey works 
And she had sort of planted this idea about the myth of Sisyphus and how it wasn't necessarily punishment that Sisyphus was given a rock to carry, but that rather that was like a form of meditation and breathing in and breathing out was like a a meditation for Sisyphus. And she handed him a rock and he had to walk the length of Central Park um, in the hot July heat carrying this heavy rock. And then he walked, I think it was for like three or four hours. He walked from the like 110th street down to alphabet city, which is like a hundred blocks carrying this rock. And we sort of like slowly stripped him away. And then once we did that, we kidnapped him and we brought him to this wild Bacchanal where he just like let loose and was like in this wild party that was like the same energy he brought with his intellect but in his body and it was like people were eating haunches of meat and like dancing and drumming and just being like really in their bodies so they're usually incredibly powerful to work on and they're really transformative for the person so a lot of people end up like breaking up with someone or getting married they'll like recommit to a partner they'll move, they change jobs. Like they Mm -hmm. see their whole world differently after these experiences, which is really phenomenal to witness. Yeah. Cause it's, um, you're, you're guiding them through an experience, uh, with the goal of transformation, which I think is interesting because it's like, uh, it's one, you know, it's one thing to prescribe a change for somebody, but to like not understand the layers that they're working with or, you know, who they are as a person, it can go, you can go down a pretty dangerous route. Um, the, the background and the research that you do, it sounds like in, in the multiple like kind of brains working on a project allows you to, um, to make those kinds, not, not, I wouldn't call them prescriptions, but like, you know, those, 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 like, where do we want this transformation to happen is, is, uh, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. And it's very meaty and complex and nuanced and like, we're all not flat paper cutouts, right? Like you learn Mm -hmm. so much for me reading applications. I always have this experience where I'm like, as much as I'm encountering all the particularities uh, of each of these lives, I'm also seeing that everyone has the same fundamental fears. Like, will I be successful? Will I fall in love and find a partner to be with? Will I have a family? Will I make enough money? Like we all are, we all have these like basic shared worries and desires and it's really cool to be privy to that vulnerability and like see all the ways that that desire can be nuanced and changed based on who you are and how you've lived in the world how do you finish the prompt before i die i want Uh, before I die, I want to write another book, at least. Um, I, I think there are like so many things that I want, but 
they all seem superficial in some way or like death seems like this thing that like you're really not in control of and it's almost like also you know returning to our earlier conversation like if I was told that I was gonna die in my 80s what I would say for before I want is gonna be so different than if I were told that I was gonna die in four years or something um Mm -hmm. that like ambition and scope it almost feels like frivolous because I know I'm not in control of it and I know that I yeah I'm powerless to how and when I will die so all I can do is like live today as the in the best way that I know how and like keep working towards those life goals that aren't necessarily about like I want to write a book I'm working on some essays and yeah I'd love for those to go out in the world but as long as I've spent my time on my way out doing that thing it doesn't matter if they end up going and getting published right like mm-hmm. there's no all the ego of desire gets removed when you die So like most of your desire. No, go ahead. Yeah, it changes. Yeah, I think it's funny that that you uh, avoid those those sort of like bucket list items. That's what I call them. Like, like I want to like climb a mountain. I want to do this. I want to have these things. Or like uh, they can be so, um, they can feel very flat and um, just like not, like when you're, when you compare it to the, the, the finality of death and they can feel so weak um yeah but they can they can also be like markers along the way as like a um like almost like a like if i do this then that means i'm i'm doing the work that i know that i want to continue to do so like the 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 wanting to put out another book means that you want to do continue that work you want to like keep it going and those are the ones that kind of those kind of bucket list items I think are the ones that are the ones that are worth having. Yeah. And I think that it's also temporary, like uh there's definitely the the argument that some people make that like artists work is are their sort of like babies and it comes from the same urge that some people have to have children and that you want to be immortalized in some way. And I don't think it's for me about outliving myself. Uh, For me, it's about, it's always all of my creative work is this is in search of like more humanity in the world, being in the world, more like vulnerability, more intimacy, more curiosity, all these things are really important to me. And I talked about them as like things that are connected between teaching sex ed and teaching poetry and working on odysseys for Odyssey Works. Um, And I think they're also part of the visual art and the writing that I make in that like before I die, I want 
more humans to be able to encounter their own humanity and be less worried. Like I see so many of my poetry students this last quarter were really stressed out about their grades and they feel so isolated. I don't know if you see this, but like when we were in college, like I don't think I had a touch screen phone. Like the iPhone came out when we were in college, I think. And like just the prevalence of technology and its presence in a classroom and the way that it has caused young students to socialize these days, socialize themselves is so, it's so radically inhibiting their ability to feel connected to other people that they don't know how to like turn around and ask interesting provocative questions of one another that could prompt intimacy like intimacy can happen so fast if you ask the right question and someone's willing to share a real answer with you um and so i think when i think about like how i want to spend my days before i die it's mostly about giving more people that opportunity and space to feel deeply connected with themselves and with others and to to trust that like the things that we love to do make us just as are part of what makes us human but also our anxieties and worries and fears are also what makes us human and it's okay to have those things like be part of your day Mm -hmm. um and just because you have being just because you're anxious or just because you're sad about something doesn't mean that you're like clinically depressed and that that's like a space for you to really share something with another human rather than be shut down and sort of apart Mm-hmm. Yeah, that level of like want to, wanting to foster that uh, further connection in others, it's um, and seeing it in in, the, in people that are growing up in a in a generation that is very. Even though I, I'm only maybe like ten years away, uh, it's still like a very different ten years. Like the, things are very uh, like we're running a large scale experiment on like what what do, what does a, a a little computer in your hand do to a person into a community um we don't really know and we don't really know what will happen when a full generation of people grows up with this yeah and it's kind of scary to surrender so much of your time being in the presence of others to this object that mediates everything and of course it also brings great joy like uh as someone who's in a long distance relationship i'm so glad for my tiny computer that means i can see <laughs> someone's face like i can call lucas and feel that much closer to him but um i'm also grateful for the re- the times when i can be removed from that and be out in nature at the lightning field and be totally cut off Um, and like feel the real scale of like what does and doesn't matter truly like I think since I've learned that I'm BRCA positive like the small that sort of like cheesy don't sweat the small stuff thing (laughs) 
is like so much more present as a like this day that I'm stressed out about not having turned in a great analysis of one of my pieces of writing for a final. It's like, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to remember this in five years, let alone probably one year. So, mm-hmm. or like being stressed. Sometimes I look at my students and I'm like, you're so stressed about all your midterms, but like, and yeah, maybe a lot of them are in STEM fields. So they're going into these places that really care about their grades from what I can tell. But like, you can either choose to just be in it and shed your anxieties about the outcome, but like just give your full presence to it. Or you can get like really wrapped up in the anxiety and hate the process, right? (laughs) What else do you want before you die? You want to write a book? You want to ensure that uh, or or facilitate uh, more connectedness than others? Um, Is there anything else on that list? Hmm. Um, there may be more like bucket list E, but I think like continuing to travel, travel and like seeing the world and living abroad has always brought me great joy. And it's a way of being curious about the world and sort of like continuing to absorb things that are unfamiliar and not get mm-hmm. too comfortable. Um, And I would love to show some of my artwork more in galleries. And I would love to keep teaching, writing, and having the freedom to write. Um, One of the ways I've always sort of like given created space to be making art and writing all the time since I graduated college has been just like keeping my expenses really low. So like, (laughs) (laughs) like not having a lot of financial responsibilities or bills. And, um, I would love to like keep teaching because it is so wonderful. I love being around my students and being part of that very, tender place of learning about the world and letting students know that it's okay to not know everything. And they're also like so fucking brilliant. I'm sorry. I keep talking about my students, but like (laughs) I asked a class that I had uh, if they knew what intersectionality was. And I was like, I did not know what intersectionality was when I was their age. And in a room full of 30 students or so, only one person raised their hand and said that they didn't know that word. I was like, that's amazing. Of course, probably some of them didn't raise their hand because they were embarrassed or something, but like, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, I think just the fundamental uh, social and political engagement that the students I have come in with as compared to what I had when I was 18 is phenomenal. Like they're so well-read and they just don't realize that like how progressive that is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think before I die, I would love to like going back to this idea of home. I would really love to have a house that's like a home base and feel more rooted. Um, I want to just keep 
keep asking questions and keep learning new things and seeing the world and being in the world and making new friends and questioning the status quo. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really hard, that's a really hard question. It's uh, it's a tough one, especially, um, I think I'll, um, I forgot what I said. I think I I had a very specific answer because I knew how hard this question is or this prompt mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And it's tough for, it's tough for you because you have the both um you have it, it's tough in that you are relatively young and that you also have this um this this dark cloud hanging over you. So it's like you have you know like an 80-year-old before I die is going to be very specific. They're going to be like I want these things. I want these, yeah. and if I can get them, I'm good. Like I want my grand, I want my great grandkids. I want all, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And like, uh, you know, like your average, like 28 year old, is going to have such a distant view of like what they want before they die because the idea of death is so nebulous. Um, yeah. So it's it's a very you're in a very interesting spot, and so I I I think the fact that you're wrestling it with it is a good sign. Yeah, and I think I could I could be so specific, like I could be like. Oh yeah. So I want to, I don't want to publish just one book. Like I want to publish as many books as I can until I die. (laughs) Um, Mm. and like, I want to have multiple exhibitions and I want a gallery to represent me and I want to get grants from like these X, Y, and Z famous foundations like the NEA or whatever I want. You know, there are all these like creative and professional ambitions that I have, but I think the question of, before I die ultimately is like a confrontation with the world that's deeper than your professional goals. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want people to think differently. That's it. that's that's hard that's that's a hard request but it's a good one because it's simple and it's uh you know it's not just just getting people think differently to like interact with the space differently like how do you interact with a room that doesn't have a couch and doesn't have a tv so you'd like how do you orient yourself how do you orient a group of people around that kind of a space so it's Mm -hmm. always fascinating to me and it's uh and how rigid other people are and also the ways in which I'm rigid in I don't even notice it you know it's very very fascinating yeah yeah and I try and one of the things I do with my students is I often will encourage them to sit in a different place than they usually sit just so that they can like someone in our in our high school did that and I remember it sticking with me like it's so easy to just fall into the place that you've sat for the last three weeks but you'll see the world in a subtly different way if you sit in a different spot and like that's only going to prompt new ways of approaching the world um yeah mm-hmm. how about the next prompt when i die i want hmm. i think when i die i want to feel at peace i want to feel I don't feel very scared of death. I feel pretty scared to have surgery, but I don't feel scared to die. Um, Because dying is all about losing control. 
Um, so when I die, I think I just want to have been my most like honest, full of integrity, open self with the people around me and to have like given respect and dignity and humanity to all the people around me and not feel like I've hurt anyone or I guess this is essentially saying like having no regrets but like walking out of this consciousness with a sort of trust that I've done the best that I could and I think when I die I I don't want it to be I want it to be a, a moment of acceptance rather than resistance. Is there a death that has informed that, like uh, whether one that has been too much resistance or one that has been uh, that was uh, a, 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 a very impressive amount of acceptance, like one way or the other? Has has there been a death that has affected you in that way? Mm. Um, no, I've been really pretty fortunate in that I've lost two grandparents, but not that many other people who are really close to me. Um, I haven't had many people in my life who were close that were also like taken unexpectedly or died. Mm -hmm. uh, abruptly um, I think I think it's maybe just about wrestling with being Brock positive and knowing that I don't know I think a lot about Mrs. Rayford actually um, I don't know if you know she died of ovarian cancer I did not. Yeah. Um, and I remember listening to a podcast that she had been interviewed on, uh, like right after she died and that I listened to it. And um, she was a teacher who I think like really was really impacted and affected the way that I thought about the world and how I saw what it meant to be a good human and an inquisitive and gentle soul. She was just, did you have any classes with her? I did. Um, she was just a phenomenal light. And in this podcast, she was, I think there was something, or maybe it was something that her husband had posted in a Facebook group after she died that was sort of just like, at a certain point, I guess it seemed like she just didn't want to fight anymore. She didn't want to be like struggling to stay alive and doing every last thing that was like depleting her alive energy just to stay 
physically alive without yeah. being like soulfully alive. Um, at least that was how I sort of remember and interpreted that. And I think like listening to that really affected me of like, there are moments when death is approaching and you can, I think it's really admirable to fight and sort of like work really hard to know that you want to be alive for more time. And I think that boldness and confidence and sort of like will to live is really beautiful but I think also the sort of like seeing and accepting that there can be it can be time to go even if you don't want to mm-hmm. I think that like grace is really important um, and ability to realize that sort of like Taoist mentality of just being with the river. There's a lot of good stuff there. And uh, something that's kind of been coming up for me and that while you're talking was the, uh, um, I, we adopted an older cat a couple months, uh, like last year and he Mm -hmm. ended up dying and um, we have this older dog now. And, um, just just the the quiet acceptance like something that i've i've been trying to do or and now now it's happening without me even really um recognizing that i'm consciously doing it it's just like a quiet acceptance of the death of of this dog mm-hmm. like already yeah like I'm, I'm i'm enjoying i'm enjoying her life enjoying the time with her already so much and um, i'm wondering how much that will happen when um when I start a family of my own, when I see my, when I see a child of my own and being like, this kid's going to die. I don't know when, but this kid is going to die. And I hope it's after me, but eventually they're going to die. And uh, just being able to reckon, just accepting that rather than just trying to like, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a a thought that's not fully fleshed out. Yeah. And it's funny how like being a parent is often people's like first real encounter with their mortality. Mm-hmm. And it's not even about themselves. It's about other mm-hmm. people. Um, which is kind of related to my sort of feeling of like my will to live or will to um, stay healthy is almost like more for Lucas than it is for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's for me too, but it's easier to say like he lost his mother when he was uh, young and like, I'm like, you don't need to experience any more dramatic death. Like, we've been together four years. I'm like, I don't want to die on you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want you to be, like, essentially, we're not married, but, like, I don't want you to be, like, essentially a widower. And mm-hmm. you're, like, young. You don't need another, like, poorly timed loss, you know? Mm-hmm. Um forget your question <laughs> no i don't even know if i asked one uh, let's 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 pivot though uh, what do you imagine the moment of your passing to look like or feel like mm. i have no idea actually i don't know like metaphysically what death is or like where consciousness dissipates to um I was talking with someone recently who described being present for 
a loved one dying and like really being able to feel the presence leave the room when it happened. Um, and like I said, I haven't had too many intimate encounters with death. Um, so I don't know what that moment is, but Yeah, I think maybe that's like one of the things that I like truly deeply don't know and don't have answers to and don't even have theories. Because <laughs> I, and I don't even know that I want to theorize about what that is or like what happens when you die. Because it seems so unknowable and there are like so many things you can know now just by, you know, going on your phone and being like, hey, Siri, mm -hmm. what is this? <laughs> <laughs> What day of the week was April 4th, 1960? She'll tell you which day of the week it was, you know? Like, <laughs> there's so much that we can know that it's, like, kind of beautiful to not know or, like, encounter those spaces where it's just absence of awareness. Um, But I, I think I just trust it. And who knows, maybe like, maybe if I someday get sick, it'll be a lot scarier to sort of like, you know, I think what I've realized is that being sick is scarier than being, than dying. Uh, um, like I'm more scared of having surgery because of the pain and the long process that is going to undoubtedly be very emotional, that is healing. That's more scary to me than dying. There's nothing for me that I know about after death. There's nothing for me to anticipate there. It's the same with chemo, like getting, if I were to get sick, like chemotherapy seems far worse than dying in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. because you're conscious for that. Mm -hmm. And there's, I was talking with a friend about, um, like Arctic explorers and, um, uh, and like specifically Shackleton and, uh, mm. you know, they had, they had, uh, there was a point where they were like, we need to figure out a reason to live because dying will be so much better than the reality that we'll be experiencing. And yeah. so their, their, their drive was like, we need to stay alive so that other people can know what happened. Because if it was just to stay alive, mm -hmm. they're like, well, no, thank you. I'm so cold. Yeah. I'm so, so cold. I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm so cold and I'm so hungry. It's like, no, thank you. I just, I, let's just, let's just give up. So like something that, that idea of just like, uh, of just how hard living can be while it's, when it's not fun. Um, yeah. versus how, how simple and clean death is. It's just over. And we don't know. Yeah. We, we, no one's ever come back that we know of, you know, with like a really great accurate, like we, we didn't have like a recorded statement or, you know, a, no film has come back, you know, from death. <laughs> so it's just this idea of like, it's a big black hole. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, it's funny, like, the I don't know I'm more scared of having to rely on someone for three months 
while I like maybe can't use my abdominal muscles and my pectorals and like the mm-hmm. fact that I won't be able to probably do a lot of things that on a day-to-day level make me like a happy, healthy, mentally well person, like writing or exercising mm-hmm. or cooking. Um, all of those things will be a challenge. And so that's far more intimidating to me. And I've always been like very bad about physical pain. I don't like it at all. I hate shots and they don't even really hurt now that I'm an adult, but I still hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's, it's scary to be reliant. Like I was, I'm a very independent person and, one of the things I think being in relationship with Lucas has been like the greatest learning for me is how to rely on another person and how to trust another person to take care of me um, and be okay with being weak in front of another person because I didn't really have to do that until I met him. I could just take care of myself and I had taken care of myself then been in any serious relationships before him um and it's interesting to realize how hard it is to rely on other people and trust them when you know how to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. i remember i was talking at a i went to a palliative care conference and um one well, got into a really lovely conversation and it was just like a, sort of like an advanced directive discussion. And I was just mm-hmm. like, who, who, who are like three people you, who you want to help you to the bathroom? Who are three people you definitely yeah. don't want to help you to the bathroom? Like those kinds yeah. of things, like just like those, those like real vulnerable details of like what, like this meat bag is not going to last forever. And uh, on its way out, who, who do you want to help you with a meat bag? Yeah. Yeah, especially those like humiliating things like going to the bathroom or like um yeah it's really it's so so personal um who you can trust when you're in that place of like complete and utter weakness and all of the the things that make you most valuable and interesting as a human have evaporated away in illness Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways like sickness strips you of the things that are your like core identity Mm -hmm. Um, and you're just flesh how do you finish the final prompt after i die i don't think there's any wanting after you die like, I can't desire things when I'm not alive. Um, I mean, in my present self, imagining myself no longer here, you know, I can hope that all my loved ones are happy and healthy and um, that, you know, suddenly all humans in the world and particularly the United States suddenly wake up one morning and believe that black lives matter. And, you know, I can wish that there's going to be world peace and that we'll only elect intelligent presidents from here on out who have 
exhibited deep care and empathy for all their constituents. And, you know, um, after <laughs> I die, I can hope that the planet will not be drowned in all the disposable coffee cups that people waste every day and the straws that are swallowing up the oceans. But uh, ultimately, all I have is like the days that I do have living, right? Like, after I die, I don't know what happens. So I don't know how to desire something from that. Maybe that's like a hard-headed answer to your question. <laughs> it's a good answer. It's uh, it it's very. It tells a a good. Uh, it it tells a little bit about you, which I like. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what do you uh, say? All of these, I'm like, mm -hmm. what does Eugene think about these? <laughs> <laughs> oh, for mine, I think I said I want the experiments of of um technology civilization uh by like life to continue on sustainably like i gave a very particular oh, yeah. answer whoa yeah whoa okay yeah yeah, yeah it's cool, funny because like you ha we have this desire to be sort of like godlike and imagine mm -hmm. the world will be a better place once we die mm -hmm. you move from the sort of like before i die there's this bucket list and then by the time after you die you're like the whole world will be reshaped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a weird thing to imagine because it's like the, what's what the difference between uh, 20 years after your death to 2000 years after your death to 20,000, 200,000 years after your death. It's just, it's so all after. Me. Yeah. Everything it, is after. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. There's this amazing book by uh richard mcguire it's a i wouldn't say it's a comic it's a graphic novel um but it's very and i've it's the only graphic novel i've ever read um it's very poignant in that it's the view of one room for millennia and so you're looking each page and it's not in chronological order so each page will be for most of the like human era that's in the book, you're seeing this living room. So you'll see a living room in the twenties and the furniture will be different and you'll see the family sort of like slowly grow up over time in this living room. Mm -hmm. And then you'll turn the page and you'll see, or you'll turn a series of 10 pages and each page will be the like family Christmas photo that's taken in front of the like mantle or fireplace or whatever each year. And then, you know, like 30 years later, the kids now have grandkids. And then 40 or 50 years later, someone else owns the house and it's been redecorated. And then 200 years in the past, it's like a colonial brick building. Or, and then, you know, thousands of years in the past, you see dinosaurs wandering through it. Thousands of years in the future, you see this molten lava planet that doesn't have to. <laughs> Um, but it is this great question of like, there's so much that comes after, right? It's really easy to just think of the, like, immediately, like the people, you know, that are alive and how they'll deal with your death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we've covered some really, really good ground this, this, during this, uh, 
conversation. Uh, like I, at first, if I didn't know you were Burka positive, and uh, I don't know how I would have known, but it, it was just fascinating to, to discover it and to uh, hear what it was like on, on your side, because it's something that gets thrown around so much in like in like my multiple choice question stems that I have to study really? for, for medical school. Yeah. Just like, oh, this patient's Burka positive. And then I'm like, okay, cool. And then I, these are the things that I think about. But uh, to to understand like one person's navigation of that experience, which is something that I just see in a question, like a, in a paragraph, but mm-hmm. to see it in, in a in a life, and just uh just the the way that you interact with art and the way that you create, I think it's uh, it's all very very great, and uh, it's been a great conversation to catch up with you, and I want to give you the last uh, few minutes, few moments to address the audience directly whether you're talking to yourself um, in the in your 40s, uh, maybe after the mastectomy, um, after some surgeries, um, and with a little bit of, you know, a little few miles on, on the car, you know, but uh, still, still trucking along, or maybe it's uh, somebody who um, relates to your experiences, uh, whether it's through art, whether it's through medicine, um, but the, the floor is yours to talk to the audience directly. Mm. Well, first, I think that the audience should know that we won a swing dancing competition in high school together. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And they should just learn a little bit about their host and who he was. (laughs) Um, um, I see. What would I say to the audience? I don't know who your listeners are. I don't know who they are. Who is tuning in to listen to my ramblings, but um, I hope that they can be curious about the world around them and that, you know, it's interesting that you say this thing about seeing like a question on a test that's about being BRCA positive and this also, I just read this study that um, was about how, I guess, when people read CAT scans, if you put a photo of the patient on the stack of paper with the scans, you're like 40% more accurate when you <laughs> read medical records, if you see just like a photo of someone's face. And I wonder you know, that's all about empathy, right? It's about being able to see someone as a fully fledged, complex being, not just a diagnosis. And I wonder how that, like, eventually, if you practice medicine in any way that relates to uh, having a patient who's BRCA positive, I'm sure you're going to see them differently now, right? Like... Mm-hmm. Sounds like your pursuits and interest in medicine are vastly different than um, that necessarily as a specialty. But I think one of the things that's been the weirdest about uh, interacting with doctors so much is how much they like don't always trust me. Um, one of the things that has been like a particularly frustrating part about seeing doctors is how they don't believe me when I say I don't want kids 
and mm. how they'll like try and convince me that I'm going to change my mind. I'm like, no, like I just have never had that urge. And, you know, yeah, maybe I will change my mind. I see the like expansiveness of what it means to be a human and how I've already changed my mind on parts of my identity that I thought were like unmutable. Um, but I think it's just so interesting to consider how doctors can have empathy with their patients and um it's that it's like not embedded it's ostensibly about giving care right and how can Mm -hmm. we give the best care um and i think about that a lot like what it means to care for others and how you can be caring in every interaction um Yeah, I'm just rambling. I don't really have anything to say to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. That's what this that's what this whole thing is for. It's a good bit of rambling. Uh, all right, Aiden. This has been a I'm really sorry, lovely conversation. Ended on some spectacularly succinct note. <laughs> it's all right. It doesn't need to. These are snapshots of a person. This is just a one one and a half hour conversation. This is yeah. a snapshot. In the, great. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry. Don't you worry. So thank you so much. This has been a really, uh, a really lovely conversation. And I hope you've enjoyed it because I have as well. Um, yeah. And uh, no, no, my pleasure. This has been Aiden LaRue on Death.